Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining us now, Eric Robertson, Standard Chartered Bank Global Head of Research. Eric, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's pick up where Lisa left off, shall we? If they can't surprise, how do they guide? Look, I think what the Fed is going to tell us <clears throat> is that uh, they remain ready, willing, able to do uh, whatever they feel is necessary to continue to support the economy. Um, they have shown uh, over the last few weeks that they have uh, probably moved away from trying to operate in a traditional meeting-by-meeting framework. And as their uh, assessment of the economy, credit conditions, and liquidity changes day-to-day, they react as, as they need to. So I would agree with the assessment that we shouldn't be expecting any major surprises. Uh, I think we'll get some guidance on on asset purchases. But you know, look, the, the Fed's balance sheet's gone from just over four trillion to six and a half trillion in very short order. So um, I don't think they're going to be telling us that they're going to be stopping. But I, I think we may get some guidance on on what the the magnitude of, of asset purchases looks like going forward. Well, let's talk about that, Eric. Have you settled on a number, a monthly number for purchases? No, I haven't. I mean, look, I, you know, when the Fed started this uh, a few weeks ago, they were talking about daily numbers of asset purchases that, you know, 13 years ago during the financial crisis, we would have assumed would have been a monthly number, right? So the order of magnitude of what the Fed is prepared to do uh, today versus, you know, years past is just dramatically different. Um, I think the Fed's balance sheet is going to go, you know, quite a bit wider and larger. Uh, they're already at, at about 30% of GDP, as I said, $6.5 trillion. I can easily imagine them getting to, to 7 or $8 trillion by the end of the year. Eric, let's talk about guidance a, a little bit further and dig in there as far as what the central bank is actually looking for. Is it inflation? Is it unemployment rates? Are they focused at all on the increasing wealth gap that we saw increasingly in focus post-2008? Where, how important is it to determine which of these factors the Fed's really focused on? So I think, look, I, I think you can prioritize those. Um, and I think this is how the Fed is, is likely to be thinking about it. The first question, point you made was inflation. Now, we all know there's been a massive uh, amount of demand destruction and, and, a, and, a, and a significant uh, contraction in the economy. In that environment, the Fed's not going to worry about inflation in the short term. If anything, they're probably more worried about deflation. Um, the other points that, that you mentioned, um, I, I think, are are also important. But uh, you know, things like the wealth gap and the wealth divide. Look, there was a lot of pushback against the Fed after the financial crisis for contributing to the growing wealth gap. They can't worry about that right now. They have to worry about supporting the economy in the very short term. And then as the crisis, both the economic crisis and the health crisis subsides, then they can go to work and really dig into trying to look at some of those, those issues uh, that are more structural for the economy. But for the moment, they have to do everything they can to try and keep businesses and the consumer uh, from imploding. Eric, as Chairman Powell 
does the press conference today, there's going to be a feeling of so many of our American listeners that he is the central banker to the world, whether it's Brazil or Ecuador or any of the other troubled uh, nations. You've got a unique view on this. It's standard charter. What is the risk to the American major banks of an EM blowing up? I mean, is Chairman Powell doing the press conference today worried about the too-big-to-fail American banks' exposure to the EM world? Um. I, look, I would respond to that in a couple of ways, Tom. I mean, look, anytime you have an, a, a global economic crisis, you're always going to be worried about the banks, not because you necessarily believe they have systemic risk, but because the banks are the facilitators of capital and liquidity. And, you know, I think the big difference between today and 13 years ago is that this crisis did not originate out of the financial system. And so as this economy starts to turn around, when, which it will at some point, and that's for the U.S. and globally, the, the Fed and the other central banks around the world need the banking system to facilitate that recovery, to contribute to that recovery, and to make sure that monetary policy is distributed to, to the broader economy. So I think he will be worried in the sense that he wants to make sure the banking system, both domestically and internationally, is working but I think, you know, we have to recognize that the banks globally have raised a significant amount of excess capital and liquidity in reaction to what they experienced 13 years ago. So will he be concerned? Yes, but not because he thinks there's an, an imminent problem or crisis brewing. Let's turn to Europe, Eric, with regards to this conversation. What I'm hearing is we can grow away some of these problems. Europe has not been able to grow away the problems of the last 10 years. As you look at Europe right now, do you expect they can grow away the problems of the next five years? Look, it's a great point. It's a great challenge for Europe. Um, there's, there's two problems there, actually. I mean, when you take on a significant amount of debt, which, uh, which Europe did after the financial crisis, you hope that one of two things will happen. Either you grow your way out of it, as, as you mentioned, or you can inflate your way out of it. And, and as we all know, Europe has, has, has lacked uh, above-trend growth for a same period of time, which also means they haven't been able to generate inflation. Um, so I think that will be something that is on people's minds because, as we know, you know, the amount of debt being issued, the amount of debt being put onto the central bank and the national bank balance sheets is, is growing. Um, and I think that raises some concerns about the lack of fiscal unity in Europe. We know we have a, a, a very competent central bank for, at the ECB, but you don't have the equivalent fiscal authority in Europe that guides the broader EU economy. And I think that's still probably the biggest structural challenge that Europe is facing. So, Eric, just build on that. Do you have a sense that emerging from this crisis, there'll be a stronger unity when it comes to uh, the fiscal uh, muscle of Europe? Or do you think that we're going to see an increased Euroscepticism? Uh, I think it's I think we're already seeing uh, the Euroscepticism. Um, I mean, every time we have uh, either an economic or political hiccup uh, in the Euro area, you see the, the, the Euroscepticism uh, increase. Um, so this time is no different. Um, you know, Italy uh, has its own uh, both economic and health challenges. It looks like we're starting to see some improvement on the health side. Um, and it's no secret that you know, Southern Europe is, is looking for a certain kind of fiscal support from the rest of Europe. 
and their northern cousins are, are, are proposing or offering a, a, a different form of support. And this is where the lack of fiscal unity is, is a real challenge and a real problem. Um, we would all like to believe that, that a crisis brings them together, uh, but I think, you know, I think the challenge is going to remain that the growth differentials, the inflation differentials, and the labor productivity differentials between the North and South remain very wide. That's an ongoing challenge, and you see that reflected in the current. We've got to leave it there, sir. I apologise. I couldn't hear you clearly at the end there. Eric Robertson, Standard Chartered Bank, Global Head of Research. What you need to know, folks, is I come out of my bedroom, there's a hallway with lots of economics books. If I don't trip over vet bill, there I am looking at Abel Bermanke, I'm looking at Michigan, I'm looking at Eichengreen and all the others thinking about the theories underlying economics. Randall Krosner is at Chicago in his expert on the foundations of our Federal Reserve System. Governor Krosner, thank you so much for joining us. What is the theory today the Chairman Powell's using at his press conference. Is there, a, is there a theory or a belief or a foundation given the size of this natural disaster? Well, I think he's going to be using uh, the traditional tools, but obviously realizing that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in using, uh, in using those tools. Um, clearly, there's been a very negative demand shock as well as a negative supply shock. And... Um, both of those are uh, going to mean uh, that uh, we're likely to see um, very low uh, economic activity and um, uh, and uh, downward price pressure. And so he's going to be trying to use that framework for thinking about what tools the Fed have at disposal to try to set those. Randy, when you left the Fed coming out of the last financial crisis, did you ever think that this is where we would be 10 years later with the Fed using all of the tools that it's currently using, all of the guidance, the radical transparency. Did you ever see this Federal Reserve heading in that direction? Well, we'd set everything up so that it would make it easy to stand up some of those problems if there were a big shock to come. And although I'm generally an optimistic person, I'm also a realist and and realize that every once in a while there's going to be a big shock that comes. Did I anticipate this particular shock? Certainly not. Um, but did I think that there would be a shock where the Fed might have to stand up to these programs? Alas, yes. Randy, given your position as governor of the Fed from 2006 until 2009, you're uniquely positioned to be sort of a, a potential um, fly on the wall in some of these discussions. And I have to wonder how much moral hazard is weighing on the minds of Fed Chair Jay Powell and all of his peers. The idea that with their ongoing backstop of markets, they're encouraging investors to take more and more risk going into companies that perhaps shouldn't exist anymore. Now, this is, I think, a very important part of the discussion. And I think you see this struggle with respect to the Main Street lending program, for example. So this is a new area that the Fed's going to get into financing small loans uh, for, uh, for Main Street businesses, for small and medium-sized uh, businesses. And what they want to do is have the banks retain 5% of the risk. If something goes wrong, that they, they take the first 5% of loss. They try to minimize that moral hazard risk that someone just takes the money and, and runs. The challenge is that they also want to get the money out really quickly. And if you want to get the money out quickly, um, that means you'd probably do less due diligence than you otherwise would. And that's why they're giving a, so much of a guarantee. And so the struggle there is, do they go all the way? I'm speaking to you from, uh, from 
where I am in London. And they've had exactly this debate here of whether they should have 100% guarantee of these small business loans to get them out quickly or uh, worry about the risks more, and then they go out more slowly. Randy, what's so important here, we talked to Rick Michigan, the former governor, about this the other day uh, as well. At some point, the pandemic ends, and then we have to reverse these processes. Can we do that with smooth glide paths? Uh, Very important question. Well, I don't think it's going to be just um, a, a quick on and off. So I th- certainly think we've seen the V down, but I don't think we're just going to see a V back up. I think there are going to be fundamental changes to people's behavior, fundamental changes to supply changes, uh, supplies, uh, uh, supply chains that are going to make it more difficult to have just a smooth recovery. That said, the Fed does have the tools at its disposal to withdraw some of the uh, reserves and some of the liquidity that it puts into the system. Much like after the uh, the crisis a decade ago, people were very concerned that when the Fed's balance sheet exploded to more than $4 trillion from much less than a trillion uh, before the crisis, that we'd have hyperinflation. Obviously, we haven't over the last decade, and the Fed has the tools to prevent that going forward. Okay, they've got the tools going forward, but again, none of this at all is in the textbooks. Uh, you know, Steve Major today of HSBC modeled that we're going out to $9 trillion in a $17 trillion economy. Do we just roll off the debt over the next 20 years, or will there be an activist program to somehow re- bring, down the de- bring down the balance sheet of the Fed? Well, that'll be very interesting to see. So obviously... These questions arose when we went from um, $800 billion yeah. to, uh, to more than $4 trillion. And then the Fed was able to gradually reduce the size of the balance sheet. But then this other other shocks and tumults in the market that come along and the balance sheet will, will grow. Um, obviously, when it starts to get to be 50% or, or, or perhaps even 75% of uh, of GDP, uh, that may be more uh, more challenging to uh, to coordinate. Bank of Japan has a balance sheet that's more than 100% of GDP. Not that I think Bank of uh, that uh, Japan is the uh, the benchmark, but obviously they haven't had high inflation there. Does the deficit in America become a financial stability issue that the Fed has to adapt and work around? It's certainly something that it thinks very carefully about because um, interest rates obviously are low and. Uh, people are uh, globally, both domestically and globally, are willing to to, to uh, finance the uh, very large expenditures that the U.S. government is making right now. But of course, that could change, and so the Fed needs to take that into account and does that take that into account in sort of its longer-run risk management planning. I think right now it's focused on making sure the economy um, doesn't contract more than it needs to, and um, we don't have a, a financial crisis that uh, is on top of the uh, the real shock that's come from this this health crisis. Randy, could you see a time when the Fed buys stocks? Uh, <laughs> well, that would take an act of Congress because they are not permitted to to do that. But I just mentioned the Bank of Japan, which is a very large purchaser of of equities. Um, I don't. I think there are a lot of other assets the Fed can purchase. And, and I think it's wiser for the Fed to stay out of the, uh, the equity market. It's not much left, Randy. Um, oh, there are a lot of assets that are out there. Oh, tell me, Randy, please. What's, what's left? So, so what are we going to do, Randy? I mean, you're the guy out. And they're buying. 
You're the guy out of Brown University. Maybe we can corner the lobster market. Governor Crosner, you have so much. Randall Crosner with us from London, and of course, always from the University of Chicago, the wonderful mathematician, I should say, from Brown University. We say good morning uh, to Rhode Island. This is going to be seen as the start of this recession, Tom. Absolutely. And of course, you fold it over, folks, into the classic equation, Y equals C plus I plus G plus all that trade noise. And the preponderant weight is the consumer. He is expert at looking at the consumer of America. Stephen Stanley has won all sorts of forecasting awards and joins us from Amherst Pierpont. Stephen, it's awful early to glean data. I know you're going to pound through the data for Amherst Pierpont, but what can we learn in this first quarter about the state of 70% of our GDP, the state of the American consumer? Yeah, well, obviously the uh, consumer spending numbers are, are the big source of the weakness in the, uh, in the data. Um, I think it's kind of incredible when you think about the fact that the economy was running pretty much on a normal footing for over 80% of the first quarter. And it was really just around the middle of March when we uh, initiated these lockdowns. And that was enough. That two-week period was enough to, to drive consumer spending uh, down over 7% on the quarter and, and GDP down almost 5%. I think it obviously tells you that uh, Q2 is going to be a quite a bit worse because we're going to have been locked down for much more than just two weeks. So given that the personal consumption numbers came in so much worse than expected, more than twice as worse as expected, are you going to rethink some of the estimates that you have baked in for second quarter consumption and GDP expectations? Yeah, I think we'll have to take a look at that. We, we do get the March data tomorrow, and, the, and that'll be helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know there is a good chance that uh, that we'll have to lower estimates for Q2 as well because if, if March is down as much as it mu- as it had to have been to get to that 7.6 quarterly number, then presumably the April numbers are probably going to be that much uh, weaker as well. We're all thinking about the recovery, the path of the recovery, the shape of that recovery. There's so much debate about a letter, a V, a U, a W. <laughs> Stephen, help us understand that debate. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's just trying to get simple enough for, for lay people to understand. But I think the, the trouble is that, uh, you know, we don't have enough letters or shapes in the alphabet to uh, to, to get an accurate view of, of what we're really looking at. I mean, I think there are really two, two ways or two things to think about here. One is the timing of the recovery and how much do you initially get back. So we're going to have a bounce back when everything is open. Are we going to get back to 50% of where we were yeah. before the virus, 80, 90? What is the number? Uh, and then the second question is, what is the shape of the economy from there? Do we flatline once we get that initial rebound, or do we continue to trend higher at a pace that would allow us to work down the unemployment rate and, um, and, and get back closer to normal? Well, the back end of the equation is NX. It's your export dynamics, folks, and your import dynamics. Stephen Stanley, do you have a clue what world trade is doing and how it rolls into the American economic experiment? Well, I mean, the, the short answer is we know that trade is, is contracting along with everything else. Um, I think from, from a GDP perspective, um, the, the, you know, the reality is that the U.S. runs a big trade deficit, so our imports are much larger than our exports. So if they both fall by a similar amount, then the trade gap narrows. And that's what we saw in the first quarter, and we'll probably see it again in the second. And then when the economy recovers, my guess is the trade 
gap will start to widen back out. But um, this is one of these big-picture, longer-term uh, themes that we're going to be exploring for a long time. It, it's not clear to me that, that we're going to go back to the uh, pre-virus uh, state of affairs in terms of global trade. I think you know countries are going to want to keep things a little closer to home at the margin than before. Uh, Steve, I want to go back to something that John was asking about, which is how we're going to emerge on the other side. And in this past economic expansion, the longest in U.S. history, everyone was saying that the consumer really was holding up its back. Can we see a repeat of that, given the demolition of household balance sheets that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the big question here is really, you know, the government is going to extraordinary efforts to basically to fill in the, the, the loss of income for businesses and households uh, that has accompanied this um, set of shutdowns. And so we've got all these programs to put money in the pockets of households and all these programs to lend money to businesses. And the question is, when we get to the other side, have we effectively filled that hole? And if we have, then things can get back to something approaching a new normal. And if we haven't, then you start to see over time this morph into a more conventional recession where you've got high unemployment and people just don't have the wherewithal uh, to spend. And, I, I, you know, I think the jury's still out on that at this point. Um, we've got a lot of stimulus in the system or a lot of relief in the system, um, but it's not clear just yet what, how effective it's all going to be. Stephen, let's turn to that stimulus and the Federal Reserve a little bit later. I caught up with Michael McKee earlier this morning and asked him what a virtual news conference will be like with Chairman Powell. <laughs> Apparently you will be there on some kind of webcam asking questions of Chairman Powell a little bit later this afternoon. If you have the opportunity to do so, what is the question you would like to ask today? Well, I, I think you know the thing that everybody wants to know is the thing that the Fed doesn't have an answer for, which is you know what does this thing look like a year from now, two years from now? I mean, everybody's kind of jumping the gun and they're talking about you know forward guidance and yield curve control and all these things that in, that would to to do those sorts of things, the Fed would have to know with a not certainty but with a some degree of confidence what the situation is going to look like in a year or two. So. I mean, I think we really have to limit our focus to the very short term. Yeah. Because I think that's where the Fed is. They're just trying to get these programs up and running. And so, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that, the, that he's going to talk a lot about this, but it would be interesting to know kind of what's holding up uh, the, the, you know, the, the opening up of some of these big facilities that they're working on and, and what are the problems that they're uh, seeing and how that might, you know, what implications that might have for uh, whether those programs are ultimately going to be effective. Yeah. Steve Stanley, very quickly here, is this a united Fed? I mean, I don't mean the, the silliness of dissent votes and all that, but, you know, they go into the Eccles building or the virtual Eccles building, that big virtual table they're going to virtually sit at. Great. Are they united? I think they are. I mean, you know, you've heard a pretty pretty united front in terms of the, the response so far from Hawks and from Doves. I, I think what sets this off from the financial crisis is that there are no bad guys here. Um, you know, in 2008, a lot of the bailouts and um, things were very controversial because you're creating moral hazard. You're, you're helping out people who maybe acted badly. And there is no one like that this time. And so, you know, Chairman Powell has made the point there's really not a moral hazard issue here because we're just trying to make everyone whole. No one is to blame. Um, and, you know, the hope is that these programs will kind of keep us back to where we were as yeah. much as possible before the virus. 
Oh, terrific. A real subtle update. Thank you so much. Stephen Stanley with Amherst Pierpont. Over the last number of days, folks, we've talked with so many officials from Johns Hopkins universities, those in different parts of JHU, those doing pure research, and those in the trenches. Lauren uh, Semple is in uh, the trenches. She is in emergency medicine, and that's, of course, a very important part of what JHU is doing right now, the challenges of Baltimore, Maryland, and, of course, the challenges of this virus. Uh, Our conversation earlier this morning uh, with Lauren Testing is absolutely the underpinning of everything else that we need to do. So while we're getting better with testing, we still have a long way to go, and we we really need to keep laser focus on that. Um, On the medications, we're seeing a lot of progress. We're um, seeing vaccine progress, which is great to hear because that is going to be a key to long-term fighting of this disease. But, again, a a lot of ways to go. What do you find, you know, the the most reassuring and the most concerning about testing? How much more testing do we need in the U.S., and are the tests reliable right now? The uh, point-of-care diagnostics are getting better, um, and they're getting used picked up more broadly. Um, We still have major issues with the supply chain around testing, so we still need the reagents, the materials that we need to run the test. We still have issues with the swabs, and we still have to focus on making sure that we don't just have enough tests, but they're in the right place, because the key to reopening and the key to getting back to work is making sure that the tests are distributed in a way that we can detect um, where clusters may pop up and where new outbreaks may occur. Lauren, let's go to your core competencies, which is emergency medicine. Okay, so we're going to have emergency rooms in May, in August, in October, across this nation, where people are going to walk in the door because, you know, afterthoughts stubbed her toe or somebody broke an arm, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to test all those people for the virus, aren't we? That's the hope, um, so that we can move them into the hospital and get them the care they need without um, putting them, them at risk, putting our other healthcare workers at risk, and putting our other patients at risk. So the idea would be is, as people who don't show symptoms of COVID-19 come into the hospital, we would put them in a different part of the hospital and still be able to safely care for them uh, while we're caring for COVID-19 and while we're still dealing with having COVID-19 out in the community. Well, you know, I look, Lauren, at this and, you know, the huge challenges. I'm right here by Mount Sinai uh, on the Upper East Side in New York, and you can just see it in the faces of the people. Are we going to end up with two emergency rooms, two hospitals? Um, I, I hope that we aren't. I, I think we, we can't distribute yeah. our clinicians like that. We can't um, distribute our resources like that. I think we hope that this will become a disease that we can manage with um, tools like we have for other diseases that, um, that make people really sick, like flu, like HIV, like a bunch of different diseases, um, where we can find people who have it early, um, safely care for them without putting others at risk, and uh, that our supply chain and... Um, <clears throat> our resources allow for that. Give us a scope and scale at the Johns Hopkins University right now. Can we say that you look forward to a May that will be improved from April? I do hope so. Um, I think we're seeing a slowdown in our cases and um, we're starting to feel that pressure release a little bit, but uh, that's the time to be vigilant and not let our guard down because uh, we will see spikes in cases, especially as people relax their social distancing practices, as they try to go back to work, as they, um, you know, just get tired of being at home and and make different choices. So we have to 
we have to remember that just because we're seeing that slowdown in cases doesn't mean this is over and doesn't mean that we suddenly have a toolkit full of tools to fight this. So we have to be protective. We have to follow those social distancing still. And it, it, it does get hard. And um, I think we have to remind each other that it's still really important. Lauren Sauer, expert on emergency medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. It is a household name across the Midwest and particularly the Northern Midwest. It is Cargill. And it is an exceptionally well-timed conversation as David Rubenstein looks at the leadership capabilities of this absolutely giant private company. Maybe it's a name you don't know. It's an important name, Cargill. Here is Mr. Rubenstein's conversation with David McLennan. John Tyson, who's the head of Tyson Foods, a competitor of yours, I assume, in certain areas, Mm -hmm. said that the food chain was maybe breaking down in this country. We're going to have to close facilities. Um, Do you agree with that? And are you worried that the food chain is breaking down? I think I would characterize it that the the food supply chain is under strain, but there's a lot of supply chains that are under strain due to what's happening. And certainly there have been food production facilities in various parts of the country that have had to close because of illness or because of supply destruction. But I think basically the ability of us to produce food uh, is still there. There are going to be momentary closings, momentary is in the right word, but we had a facility, a beef facility that was closed for 17 days, but it's now back up and running and has been for the last week. So I think the food industry and the food supply chain is resilient. I think the people that work in it every day are resilient. So I think it's under strain, but I don't think it's it's broken. David McLennan, in conversation with David Rubenstein, and of course, this is so important and part of Leadership Live with David Rubenstein. Uh, Mr. Rubenstein joins us this morning. David, you and Carlisle are intimately familiar with the peculiarities of how we make food in America. As you speak to David and as you, as you work within all of your contacts, how at risk is our food supply right now? Well, um, John Tyson made a statement and and put a newspaper ad out, in fact, saying the food chain was breaking. Uh, In response to that, President Trump issued an executive order yesterday, in effect, using the Defense Production Act to say that food plants have to stay in business and have to keep producing food, um, and he's going to provide equipment and other things to make sure their workers are safe. That's the issue that John Tyson was talking about. Many of the plants, because people work so closely together, employees have come down with COVID-19, and they have had to close down, and therefore that's uh, been a problem in getting food produced. The other problem is this, that 25% or so of the food that we produce is now really produced for restaurants or other kinds of uh, things that are not at home, but now um, those restaurants are closed down, so that kind of food supply is not really available for those people, and so they have to reposition re, uh, that kind of food. It takes time to do it. In other words, if you prepare food for, for let's say, McDonald's, and McDonald's isn't open, you can't all of a sudden take that food and, and, and put it in, in different kind of containers and send it to a supermarket, and that's been a, a challenge as well. Historically, people eat about five to seven meals outside of their home a day, a, a week five to seven meals a week outside their home. Now it's down to maybe one. And so that food chain has, is, is, is different because of different kind of people providing different parts of the food chain. Unfortunately, we also have a problem that a lot of people can't afford food right now, and you see enormous amounts of food banks going on in the United States. 
So, David, as you sat down with Mr. McLennan from Cargill, what were some of the key challenges they're trying to negotiate right now in the world of a pandemic? The key thing is making certain your employees are safe. Um, in meatpacking plants or other kinds of things where you're involved with, uh, in effect, slaughtering animals or things related to that, you have a lot of people closely working to each other, and historically they haven't had the kind of protections we now have, and getting the equipment for that has not been easy. Now they're getting that kind of equipment. It takes a while. So a lot of these plants have had people that have been um, uh, affected by COVID-19. Now they're going to come back, hopefully with better equipment yeah. and so forth and, and better safety. David, I, one final question, if we would, and I must ask sure. you about how you perceive American business and the animal spirit on this day of negative 4.8% GDP. What do you observe from all your contacts of how the American corporation fares? American corporate leaders have really uh, been working around the clock to keep their businesses afloat in some cases and or, or re- reposition them. So, yes, the economy is down, and I suspect it will be down for a little bit longer but I do think it will, will come back because, uh, you know, we have some really good companies and we have good CEOs, but there's no doubt that's been a body blow for, for at least a quarter or so, maybe maybe two quarters. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Can't say enough thank about you. the time on this, uh, this 9.30 p.m. on Friday. And, of course, this will be played across all of our digital operation as well. Mr. Rubenstein with Mr. McLennan of Cargill, uh, Carlisle on his leadership uh, series. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.